We greet you tonight again in the name of Jesus, the one who has shed his blood. Thank you, Brother Mark, for the meditation there. It's a beautiful reflection. We certainly want to welcome each one here tonight. We're thankful to be together and seeking the Lord. As you shared, I was thinking of the account of an uh, indigenous man in the South Sea Islands who couldn't read or write, very uh, illiterate. And, but praise God, someone told him about Jesus, took the gospel to him, and uh, this was his testimony. He, he couldn't read or write, but he could, uh, that's okay, you can still be a Christian. Praise God. And uh, he was a cannibal, actually, that was converted. And he said, I, I was in it, I said, he said, in my dream, I was in a dream, and in my dream, in my life, this big mountain was in front of me, and this mountain was my sins. And he said, I tried to climb. You all know what mountains are around here. I, I'm from the flatlands. I look around them, and I enjoy the mountains, but I'm not used to living in them. But anyway, he said this mountain was there, and... Uh, this mountain was his sin, and he tried to climb it, and he fell back to the ground. Tried again to climb it, fell back to the ground. Just kept trying to get over this mountain, to conquer it, to overcome it. And he fell to the ground, and finally, as he, he said, as I laid there and looked at this mountain, and I looked up to God, I looked up to God, there was one drop of blood that came, and the mountain dissolved, and I was free. Praise God. The power of the blood of Jesus. What a blessing. Thank you, brother. Let's turn to Isaiah 33. We want to uh, end up for our text tonight in Isaiah 40, but we want to just tell, share a thought from these verses here. We're not going to... Uh, there's quite a number of chapters from, we finished in Isaiah 12 last night, and then we, we want to look at Isaiah 40 here tonight, and we may come back and look at a few passages throughout that section later, but um, there's a lot in those passages. I read through a number of them today, these chapters, and there's a lot in here about judgment, God's judgments, but sprinkled throughout, there's some beautiful passages of mercy and promise and hope and He's a God of hope and a God of mercy. But in Isaiah 33, I want to start reading in verse 14. You know, we talk sometimes about, um, we talk about God and who he is. This verse brings things back into perspective a little bit because we can get a little, I know for myself, we can get a little careless and God is our father. But um, sometimes we hear people refer to God as the you know, the man upstairs, or that's, that's, that's not a good way to refer to God. He is a holy God. And they refer to him different ways. Uh, God's my buddy. You ever hear that? You know, God, God's my buddy. Um, sometimes I think, uh, sometimes our perspective, our perception of God can be affected by, uh, by some of those things. But here we have an interesting question given to us by Isaiah the prophet who who saw the Lord in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up. I believe that left a tremendous impression on him and in his life. So this chapter, verse 14 of Isaiah 33 asks two questions in here. And I want you to think about these questions. I'm not trying to give them as to, uh, 
to, to scare anyone or whatever, but to, I just want us to meditate briefly here and bringing back, bringing back the focus to, on who God really is in, his, in, in, in right, biblical perspective. It says in verse 14, The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Now it asks two questions here. Who among us shall dwell with devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? You may say, well, that's a terrible thing to say of God. But it does say in the New Testament in Hebrews that our God is a consuming fire. He is a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He is, a, he is, he is full of grace. He's a God who cares. He's a God who wants to be our father. But we want to, uh, I just, we just remember that this is a question that he asks. So we want to walk with God and we want God to walk with, we want his presence to be with us. And he asks this question here. It's an interesting perspective of God, isn't it? Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? We say we want to walk and live in the presence of God. This brings us back into perspective that God is a holy God. And he, he uh, so verse 15 goes on and answers these two questions. It says, he that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressions, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stops his ears from hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. He, that individual, that person, shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given him. His waters shall be sure. Just a little something to, to uh, ponder there through this passage of Isaiah we're not going to be looking at. But um, just something for us to, re- to, uh, to be reminded of and reflect on. God is a holy God. And we want to walk with God. We want his presence with us. He wants us to be a holy people. This goes on here and gives a beautiful uh, prophecy here, verse 17. This is still, I believe, in the context of the answer of those two questions. The one who walks righteously, the one who walks in holiness, in a life of righteousness before God. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off. Thine heart shall meditate terror. What is the scribe? Where is the scribe? Where is the receiver? Where is he that counted, counted the towers? Um, thou shalt not see a fierce people, a people of deeper speech than thou canst perceive, of stammering tongue that thou canst not understand. Verse 20, look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities, solemnities, sorry. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed, neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. Verse 21, but there the glorious Lord will be unto us a place of broad rivers and streams, wherein shall go no galley with oars, neither shall gallant ship pass thereby. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Hallelujah. So there we see the beautiful promise. An invitation to dwell in the presence of God and then the promise given that he will be our judge and lawgiver, and he will provide deliverance and salvation for us, which he has, as we heard about, through the blood of Jesus Christ. All right, let's turn to Isaiah 40 here for this evening. Uh, We'd like to look at the first 11 verses here tonight, going on with our study, uh, the gospel according to Isaiah. 
And in here, in Isaiah 40, we will see the actual word gospel. It's used multiple times in Isaiah, but we see it here in Isaiah 40. Just a few words again. Um, some of you, of you might not have been here. You, uh, Isaiah has 66 chapters, and the, and the Bible has 66 books. So uh, the, the, there's 39 books in the Old Testament, and then we have a very clear division here in the book of Isaiah after the 39th chapter. So we, we have 39, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, and there's a very clear division here that starts now in Isaiah 40, and then there's 27 chapters left. And there's 27 books in the New Testament. Now, something you can be thinking about, we'll get there uh, maybe Saturday evening or later this week, but do you know which chapter of the Messianic prophecies are Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 66? You know which chapter is right in the middle, exactly in the middle of those 27 chapters? Isaiah 53. And someone has said that Christianity is the only religion that has at its center the humiliation of its own God. Isaiah 53 is right in the middle of those last 27 chapters of Isaiah. So that's a tremendous focal point. I don't think that just happened. When Isaiah wrote it, the chapters weren't added. That was added later. But I I don't think it's just a coincidence that that happened. Okay, so here we have what I would say a little bit of a a prologue or a or an introduction to the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, and we're looking at the gospel according to Isaiah this week. So here we, we're, we're starting now into this, uh, into this part of, the, of Isaiah. And uh, again, it's not going to be an, an expository teaching clear through Isaiah, but we're picking out some of these passages to look at the different um, aspects of the gospel that were prophesied hundreds of years before they actually came to pass. All right, let's read Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, I, want to, I, saw, I forgot to say, well, I'll come back to it. Let's read this, sorry. Verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry, and he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all goodliness thereof as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. O Zion, thou bringest good tidings. And there we have the word gospel. In Hebrew, uh, good tidings there is, is, is gospel. That's the Hebrew word for gospel, good news. O Zion, thou bringest good tidings. Get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. 
So we see here an appropriate introduction to uh, the rest of the book of Isaiah. We want to look at four voices from this passage. Uh, four voices we see from these 11 verses. Four voices, and I want to try to talk about that. In Isaiah 39, you have Isaiah 36, 37, 38, and 39 are actually historical chapters that give uh, some history into, uh, into Hezekiah and his, uh, the invasion of Sennacherib there in verse, chapter 36 and then God's deliverance of that and then, and then uh, Hezekiah's sickness in 38 and then 39 ends with the ambassadors from Babylon coming to, uh, to Hezekiah and he took them all around and then there's a prophecy that given there in chapter 39 that the, whatever these people saw, they're going to, these are the people that are going to conquer Judah and Jerusalem and take them into captivity. So that's where it ends, the 39th chapter. And then we start with these words here, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. <clears throat> so the chapter 39 ends with Judah heading into captivity, into the Babylonian captivity. God's saying here in these two verses, these first two verses, I see the voice of comfort and the voice of hope. Um, he acknowledges here that uh, there will be judgment. There will be tremendous judgment. There will be uh, tremendous, it says here, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for her sins. That's an interesting thought to ponder. <clears throat> there will be judgment and punish, punishment, but God's saying, I'm not finished yet. This is not the end of the story. And he's saying, do speak comfort to my people. Speak words of comfort to them. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem and cry out to her that, there will be an end to this. There will be a restoration. There will be a, a return in a, in a hope. There will be a... So he's saying here we should, that there should be a voice of comfort and hope. Let's turn to... Keep your finger here. Let's turn to Jeremiah 29. I want to look at a passage here. Um, God saying, speak comfort to his people. I want to note here in Jeremiah 29, this is the voice of comfort and hope. And I want to look at this... Uh, the context of this uh, Jeremiah 29, there's some verses in here that are so precious and so powerful. You see them on refrigerators, doors, and magnets, and on a wall. It's beautiful, beautiful verses uh, from the Scripture. Because, but they're just so full of hope and comfort, okay? But I want to remind us of the context of this. And this is the voice of comfort and hope to the people of God that he was speaking. Now, in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah was... Uh, prophet after they were, uh, after the, uh, is, uh, Judah was taken into captivity. And so this, this is actually a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the captives in Babylon. Interesting. Okay. So we, we see the context given in the first few verses there, but we're going to break in in verse four. And this is Jeremiah's letter sent to Babylon to the captives that were in Babylon. Okay, these are, we're talking about the voice of comfort and hope for God's people. Verse 4, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. This is the word of the Lord for them through Jeremiah in a letter. And this is what he says. He says, Build houses and dwell in them, and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands. That, you may, that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And then he says, Seek the peace of the city, whether I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. 
He says, it's okay, you, there's going to be 70 years of captivity here. I think he's, he's sending him words of hope and comfort here. Verse 8, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which ye cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. So there were prophets there that were telling them, you know, we're not to build the houses. We're, we're not going to be here 70 years. But God had said, you're going to go for 70 years. You might as well settle down for the 70 years and pray for the peace of this, of this city. Verse 10, it's, it's, it emphasizes that very thing. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Now, that's the context for this verse. Verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord. They're thoughts of eve, peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. I'm not done with you. He says, comfort my people, words of comfort and hope. Yes, there is judgment for sin. And I think, I think, we, need to keep, I think we need to learn that in the Old Testament. God judged his people for sin. His, his people did not escape judgment because they were the people of God. You know what it says in the verse? It says, they paid for their sins, how much? Double. That's serious. That's sobering. God's people in the Old Testament, they paid double for their sins. But in the middle of that, you see the heart of God. He says, I, I hurt, it hurts, it, it, it harms you, but it won't hurt you. Or it hurts you, but it won't harm you, whatever you say there. But he said, in his heart, you have the heart of God. And he, has, he says, I know the thoughts that I have for you. In thoughts of peace, they're not evil. And I want to give you an expected end. Verse 12, then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hear you. I will hear you. Verse 13, and you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Even in Babylon, I think they could find God there if they searched for him. Words of comfort and hope. God is a God of hope. He is a God of hope. One of my favorite verses in the, in, the, in the whole Bible, i got to share this sometime this week. We're talking about God is a God of hope. Okay, One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is found, it's, it's in the Bible twice. It's in Isaiah, uh, Psalm 33, and it's in uh, Psalm 147. And it says this, The Lord takes pleasure in them that fear Him. The Lord takes pleasure in those that fear Him. And then it says, In those that hope in His mercy. God takes pleasure in those that hope in his mercy. That, that verse has blessed me many times. He is a God of hope. So speak. Here we see the voice of comfort and hope to the people of God. Yes, you will pay double for all your sins, but God's not finished. And this, it's a sober privilege. I would just say with that, you know, it's a sober privilege to be the people of God. It is a, it's a privilege, right? It's a privilege to be the people of God, Amen. but it also has responsibility. It's a sober privilege. All right, the second voice we want to look at here is the voice of repentance, and we want to focus on this tonight. The title is the Gospel according to Isaiah, Repentance unto Life. And so we want to look at the voice of repentance here, verses 3 through 5, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. It's the voice of repentance. Israel was returned from captivity. Uh, they returned from captivity, and there were approximately 400 years of silence. No prophetic voice there between the intertestament and the intertestament period. 
Then, all of a sudden, after 400 years of silence, all of a sudden, the, the silence is broken, or rather, it's shattered by an interesting man that's clothed in camel's hair, has a leather girdle about his loins, and he lives on locusts and wild honey. An interesting voice just breaks the stillness, a voice crying in the wilderness. Now, it's interesting that this verse 3 is mentioned at the beginning of each one of the New Testament accounts of the gospel. So this is, this is um, part of the gospel right here. The verse 3, the voice of him that cries in the wilderness, that's mentioned in each of the, at the beginning of each of the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all mention this. So this is an important part of the, of the gospel message that was coming. The ministry or the gospel, uh, the, the ministry of repentance, or the voice calling people to repentance. This ministry of repentance that prepared the way of the Lord, it's an important ministry. Uh, the ministry of repentance would prepare the way of the Lord. It would make straight in the desert, a wilderness, uh, in wilderness, a highway for our God. Now, in verse 4, it tells us how this would be done practically. And we'll look at this some more. But every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill will be made low. Now with this, I just want to share a little account. So it wasn't uncommon for kings or monarchs of, the, of, old, of, of uh, old times of this time period or older or this time period. It wasn't uncommon for them to literally do that, to make a way for a king. Let me... Let me take this. I'm reading this from Adam Clark's commentary. I do use some commentaries occasionally, by the way. <laughs> Didn't know if you were wondering after last night. So here is Diodorus, who was an ancient Greek historian, roughly from 30 to 60 BC before Christ. So here is an account of, of, of the marches of, uh, okay, Semiramis. Semiramis was the name of the king or the, of the monarch here. And so here's an account of her marches into Media and Persia. And this will give us a clear notion of the preparation of the way for a royal expedition. In her march to Ecbatana, she came to the Zarsian Mountains, which extending many furlongs and being full of craggy precipices and deep hollows could not be passed without make, taking great compass about. So she came to this mountain range the only way, it was, it was a really rugged mountain range, and the only way to do it, supposedly, was to go around it. But being therefore desirous of leaving an everlasting memorial of herself, as well as of shortening the way, she ordered the precipice to be digged down, and the hollows to be filled up. And at a great expense, she made a shorter and more expeditious road, which to this day is called from her the road of Semiramis. Afterwards, she went into Persia and all the other countries of Asia, subject to her domain, dominion. And wherever she went, she ordered the mountains and precipices to be leveled, raised causeways in the plain country, and at great expense made ways passable. It's just an interesting little thing from Adam Clark's commentary. So this wasn't uncommon when a monarch or a ruler, or a king or a queen was traveling. They would send a whole body of people. It would take maybe an army to fill in. To, to take the mountains down and fill in the, fill in the valleys and make a way for her, this, this monarch to travel. And so here we have that picture, the way of holiness, a way for the king, a way for the coming Messiah, a way for the, the Lord of glory. So there's a practical picture of how this could happen in a spiritual way. 
Now it says that the, the glory in verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And the glory of the Lord would come down this way. The, Lord, the glory of the Lord would pass through this way. And all flesh would see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So we see the importance of this ministry of repentance. It's an important ministry. You know, um, repentance is an interesting word. It's an interesting concept in the Bible. We want to talk a little bit more about it. But before we do that, I have a quote here from William Booth. Um, you know who William Booth was? Okay, Salvation Army, right? William Booth started the, uh, he started the Salvation Army back in the 1800s. And at, in, in the 1800s, it was a very zealous, uh, outreaching uh, army ministering to, to the needs in London, the down, the down and out needs, and ministering to the needs of the people, very powerful ministry to the, to the poor and so on. So William Booth, later in life, it was in 1899, okay? So right at the beginning, just before the 1900s started. In 1899, William Booth was looking ahead into the 1900s, into the 20th century. And this is what he said. The principal danger of the 20th century will be this. He's speaking to Christians. This will be the principal danger of the 20th century as he looks ahead. A religion without the Holy Spirit, speaking about Christianity, a religion without the Holy Spirit. Christians without Christ. Forgiveness without repentance. Salvation without regeneration. Politics without God. In a heaven without a hell. That was pretty perceptive. In 1899, looking ahead. That, that, that was pretty perceptive. But in the middle of that, he says, there will be, this will be the problem. This will be the, the, the danger of the 20th century Christian church. Forgiveness without repentance. Repentance is important. That's why it's here. That's why it's part of the gospel. That's why it's part of the gospel message. That's why that ministry is recorded in all the gospel accounts. Now let's, con let's consider this, the ministry of John the Baptist a little more. A few points, things I want to point out about his ministry. John the Baptist was not concerned about worship forms. So here he came... Onto the scene, this voice crying in the wilderness after 400 years of silence. And I believe he's the only prophet that had his birth foretold and prophesied. And here it would have been 700 years before he was born, roughly. And then he's prophesied twice in Malachi also. I believe he's the only prophet that had his birth prophesied. So as he comes, he is not, his ministry isn't centered around, uh, before that, the worship of the Jews. First of all, it was around an altar with the patriarchs. And then that altar was moved into a tabernacle, and then the tabernacle was moved into a temple. And then eventually that turned into the synagogue system after they were uh, sent into captivity. It's an interesting study. But John the Baptist, his ministry was not focused on a, worshiping God in a particular way, in a particular place. It, didn't, it wasn't focused on the temple or the altar or the synagogue. It was, it, he wasn't as concerned about worship forms, but he was concerned about people's hearts. He was concerned about people's hearts. He was preaching repentance to make a way for the Lord to come into the hearts of people. So there's a change happening there in, this, in, in, the, in the progressive revelation of God throughout the Bible. And this kingdom of our Lord would be established and founded not in Jerusalem, per se, not in Samaria, or not in a, a temple, but it would be this kingdom of God would come to the human heart.
Isaiah 29 says this. You don't need to turn there. Isaiah 29, 13. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips they honor me, but have they removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. They don't really care about me, God said. They, they, they have this form. They don't really care about that. Well, John the Baptist comes pro- he comes with a ministry announcing, you know, preparing the way of the Lord, and it's now going to be a new focus. It's not going to be about those outward forms. It's going to be about getting the hearts of the people ready to receive the Lord. Amen? So this kingdom would come, too, and, and the God's will would be done through the lives of those who have surrendered completely to the king that was coming. They would love him with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. Repentance prepares the way for us to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And that's what God wanted from the very beginning. That hasn't changed. And, that, and, what does, and the new covenant says that when this, after this heart is repents and turns to God and he cleanses it with his blood, then he writes his laws on that heart. And out of that heart and life there comes a life that does the will of God. Amen? Praise God. I want to just read a thought here as we think about God's kingdom coming to, our, to the heart of men and about the ministry of John the Baptist focusing on the heart and preparing the hearts of the people. <clears throat> I don't know if you ever heard this. Um, and I didn't spend a lot of time just verifying that it's all 100% accurate. But it's said of Napoleon Bonaparte after he was exiled to St. Helena, there in the island in the Atlantic Ocean, he had a lot of time to think. I guess you would there. A pretty barren island. But he must have thought some things about the Lord Jesus Christ. He called Count uh, Montalone to his side and asked him, Can you tell me who Jesus Christ was? And the Count declined to respond, so Napoleon countered. He said something like this, supposedly. He said, Well, then I will tell you. Alexander... Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires. But upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love. And to this very day, millions will die for him. I think I understand something of human nature. And I tell you, all these were men, and I am a man. None else is like him. Jesus Christ was more than a man. I have inspired multitudes with such an enthusiastic devotion that they would have died for me. And they did, died by his side. But to do this, it was necessary that I should be visibly present with the electric influence of my looks, my words, and my voice. When I saw men and spoke to them, I lightened up the flame of self-devotion in their hearts. Christ alone has succeeded in so raising the mind of men toward the unseen that it becomes insensible to the barriers of time and space. Across the chasm of 1,800 years, Jesus Christ makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks for that which a philosopher may often seek in vain at the hands of his friends, or a father of his children, or a bride of her spouse, or a man of his brother. He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. He demands it unconditionally, and forthwith his demand is granted. Wonderful. In defiance of time and space, 
The soul of man with all its powers and faculties becomes an annexation to the empire of Christ. All who sincerely believe him experience that remarkable supernatural love toward him. This phenomenon is unaccountable. It is altogether beyond the scope of man's creative powers. But I like that thought in there. He asks for something that no one else really can ask for, the heart, and expect to get it, the heart of each of us who want to serve him, the heart of each of his servants, his followers. And it's granted to him. And he takes that heart and that life and makes it an extension of his eternal kingdom. That was the first thing. John the Baptist, this ministry would focus on preparing the heart. Secondly, this ministry would call for a voluntary commitment. Let's, uh, you can keep your hands here in uh, Isaiah 40. But we're going to look to, uh, turn to Luke chapter 3, the New Testament. Gospel of Luke, according to Luke chapter 3. So the ministry, this ministry of repentance, or this ministry of John the Baptist, would call for a voluntary commitment. <clears throat> Now in the 15th year, verse 1 of Luke 3, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of Etria, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of the Lord came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain shall be brought low. The crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children of Abraham. We're going to stop there. I should have maybe just read. Yeah, anyway, I just wanted to read the the context of how his ministry is recorded here in the Gospel of Luke. But I want to point out in verse 8, he said that God, don't don't come here. Hey, listen, he said, uh, uh, he said, don't say, don't, don't say you, you, Abraham's your father, so now you have access into this kingdom just because of, of your birth. It's not going to work anymore. So it's it's going to have to be a voluntary commitment of surrender of, of the heart, opening the way for the Lord. It's going to have to take a voluntary commitment and surrender. You can't say anymore, uh, we be Abraham's seed here. Yeah, we're Abraham's seed. We, ha- we have access into this kingdom. That won't work anymore. It takes a voluntary commitment. A family tree won't work. You can't say we have Abraham to our father. It's not going to cut it. You have to make a personal surrender and commitment to the Lord, to the, to the king that's coming. It was no longer a national right or privilege, in a sense. It was a privilege to be a Jew. I want to be careful in saying that. But he's, you see that? His ministry is calling for a voluntary commitment, individual, personal, voluntary commitment. That is where we yield to the Lord. That was the second uh, thing we want to note in this ministry, uh, the ministry of repentance, or the ministry of John the Baptist. The third thing we want to note, that it was a a ministry of repentance, a complete change of heart. 
John called it metanoia in the Greek, or metanoia. Meta means to transfer, to be again. Noia means to exercise the mind. So it's a, to think differently. It's a total change of the mind. Webster's 1828, repent, to change the mind in consequence of the inconvenience or injury done by past conduct. That's one of the definitions. Another one is in theology, to sorrow or be pained for sin as a violation of God's holy law, a dishonor to his character and government, in the foulest ingratitude to a being of infinite benevolence. I like that. Repentance. So this repentance was so deep that it changed the nature of the person. Look at what it says in our text here in, in Luke. It says, the axe, verse 9, the axe... Now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees, verse 9. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So this repentance, this metanoia, this, this message of repentance that, that John was preaching, that would trans, it would change people's hearts. In, so, in such a deep way, it would change the person. They were going this way in life. It was such a radical change that they would, it, was a, it was a 180 degree turn. It was... Thinking and going this way and turning and going the other way. Now, I like this from the vines because it, 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 repentance is not just being sorry and turning away from sin. It is that. But it is also has a positive element that it means turning towards God. <clears throat> we can't just sorrow. Uh, um, yeah, we, so, repentance includes uh, turning to God. And the vines has it. In the New Testament... The subject chiefly has reference to repentance from sin. And this change of mind involves both turning from sin and turning to God. So there would be, there would be sorrow for sin, a change of mind, and then a turning to God, to his, to his purposes. This, this repentance would be so radical in the lives of people, going on here in Luke chapter 3, verse 10, that it would produce fruits or evidences that the life has been yielded to a new master, a new king. It would yield evidences of a transformed life, repentance unto life. And the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? And he answered, and he gave them some things there that they should do. There was fruit, there was evidence of repentance. And so we just want to emphasize this. We want to, to uh, it's important that there's genuine repentance because that, that opens the way. That levels the mountains of pride. It brings up the valleys of, of hopelessness, condemnation, and guilt, if someone is, is living in that. It brings down the mountains of pride and arrogance and self-dependence and self-will and independence. It brings those mountains down, and it lifts up those who are crushed and hopeless and in despair and devastation. It gives them hope, and it prepares the way of the Lord. It takes the crooked and makes it straight. Unrighteous, it turns unrighteousness to unrighteousness, to integrity, honesty, and truth. The rough ways are made smooth. My carnal, coarse ways are refined into meekness and love and humility and gentleness and kindness. Re Biblical repentance prepares the way for the Lord. Another word for it could be brokenness. But pre repentance prepares the way for the Lord. Repentance is not only sorry that I got caught. Repentance is not only sorry that I got caught or I got found out. 
And so we, we feel bad about it. We've been ashamed and we've been maybe humiliated and we're sorry about that. Repentance, if you look at the difference between the repentance of, of Saul, King Saul, when he was confronted by Sam, uh, the prophet Samuel there in 2 Samuel, or 1 Samuel, sorry. And you look at the difference between when Saul sinned and was confronted by the prophet, his repentance, and you look at the repentance of David when he sinned. It, there's a vast difference. It's an amazing study in Psalm 51. But we're not going to go there. But repentance is not just sorry I got caught. Repentance is sorry that I am not right before God. And I think that if there would be deeper repentance sometimes in our lives, me for, I'm not just pointing fingers, but if there would be deeper repentance, I think there would be more victory, more holiness in our lives. This is an important aspect of the Christian life. It's not just a one-time thing that happens. I think there's a sense where we're called to live in repentance, a spirit of repentance. But there's an initial repentance when we turn to the Lord and forsake our sins and cry out to God. And it prepares the way of the Lord. Okay, so that's the voice of repentance. Let's go back to Isaiah 40. We talked about four voices here. The second one there is verses 3 through 5. The voice of repentance. The first one was the voice of comfort and hope. The third voice we want to look at is uh, verses 6 through 8. And this is the voice of the futility of the flesh. The, the vanity of the flesh. The, the emptiness of the flesh in order to, to create, to prepare the way of the kingdom or to fulfill the eternal purposes of God through his kingdom. The flesh is not able to do it. Verse 6, the voice said, cry. So this is the voice of the futility of the flesh. Now in, this, in these three verses, we talks about the grass and the flower of the field. The grass here, I believe, is, is, is referring to human flesh. And so it's telling us there would be a voice calling people to repentance. And this voice was, was also acknowledging that this kingdom would not be built in the, in the, in the, in the arm of human flesh. It would be something else that does it. And he said, all flesh is as grass. You see it there in verse 6? So it says, it's an interesting little thought there. Now, so it's not going to be the futility of the flesh. This kingdom would not be built by the flesh, of men, or in the flesh of men. Not by, uh, yeah. So what would it be? Verse 7, the grass withereth, the flesh is, is not capable it, 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 it's not uh, the flower fadeth now, but, this, but because the spear of the Lord bloweth upon it, surely the people is grass. <clears throat> it's actually mentioned more than three times, grass is. So what would it be? So we have the spirit mentioned there in verse 7. Verse 8, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So we see it contrasted. This would be a kingdom that would come uh, through the spirit of God and the word of God coming together. This kingdom would, would be built that way. It would come forth that way. And I just remind you of what it says in 1 Peter 1. You're familiar with these. These verses are, uh, are quoted in 1 Peter 1. I'll read them for you. So it would be a kingdom that comes in the power and the might of the Almighty God. 1 Peter 1, 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. Taken directly from this, uh, this passage in Isaiah. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. And so this kingdom would come 
through the Spirit of God and the Word of God and not be in the power of human flesh or the wisdom of man. I'm going to say something here, just a little meditation for you. You think of Spirit and Word. In Genesis 1, it tells us there that in the beginning was God. I'll I'll turn this so I don't misquote it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then it says, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water, and God said. So here we have the Spirit of God and the Word of God, right? God said, the Spirit of God. And out of that came a universe, created out of nothing. The Spirit of God and the Word of God. It's an interesting study. Jesus said... I am, the, the, he was the word that made flesh. And he was baptized in the Holy Spirit as, right as he began his ministry there. The word and the spirit together in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, we see, if you study that, the book of Acts talks about the word of God and the spirit of God is poured out on Pentecost. The spirit of God is poured out. And clear through the book of Acts, you have the spirit of God and the word of God in God's church is built. That's the new creation. So the Spirit and the Word came together and created the universe. The Spirit and the Word come together in the ministry and life of Jesus. The Spirit and the Word come together and build the church of God. That's how God's uh, new creation, the church, is built. And we see it here that it's not going to be in the flesh. It's going to be through His Spirit and by His Word. It will be a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. Verses, uh, let's look at the fourth fourth voice here, 9 through 11. Here we have the voice of the church. And the gospel follows here. It follows the the voice of repentance and the voice of the the word and the spirit coming together. And then we have the voice of the church here. It's calling the gospel, calling to the gospel. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, that brings the gospel. Get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bring us good tidings. And so we have it here. We see the voice of the church. And the voice of the church here is saying, or the voice of the, the people of God, the voice of, the voice of his people crying out. They're crying out the good, the good tidings, the, the, the gospel, uh, the everlasting gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A few things that they cry out about the gospel. First of all, behold your God. Behold your God. We see that in here. Look, it means to look upon, to gaze upon, to behold your God. Lift up your voice with strength, it says. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. Secondly, it notes that the Lord will come. He's coming. Verse 10. The Lord will come with a strong hand. Not only will he come, but he'll come with strength. He'll come with conquering power and grace. We talked about last night. His arm will rule for him. He will get the victory. And not only will he overcome, but his reward is with him and his work before him. So this was the voice of the church. Behold your God. God's going to come. He's going to come and he's going to bring the gospel. Hallelujah. And he will also feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. 
Praise God. The voice of the church is saying, behold your God. He is coming. He, first, uh, the repentance, the ministry of repentance will make a highway for this king that's coming. And the word and the spirit will come and build his kingdom. And, and the Lord himself will come and his kingdom and his will will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Hallelujah. <clears throat> ministry of repentance. I will want us to think of that tonight and consider it here. The gospel, this is part of the gospel, calling men and women to repentance, to prepare the way of the Lord. Repentance prepares the way of the Lord. I'd like to look at one passage yet in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verses 29 to 33. Acts 29, or 529. So here was after the apostles were arrested, and then Peter is addressing the, probably the Sanhedrin here, or the Jewish leaders there. Verse 29, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, For to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay him. So here we see again that uh, the king was exalted and the prince, uh, the Lord was exalted. It says, verse 31, him hath God exalted with his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> Jesus said multiple times, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance prepares the way of the Lord. Repentance prepares the way for God to live, to, to, for God to reign, I'm sorry, in the hearts, in each of our hearts and lives. Isaiah 1, 18, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Hallelujah. Though they be like red, like crimson, they shall be as wool. And we heard tonight uh, in the opening meditation there about the blood of Jesus Christ and the power that it has to cleanse. Someone has said, that what, is the, what is the one sin that God can't forgive? The sin that is not confessed and repented and forsaken. The sin that is covered up. The sin that is hidden. The sin that is, the sin that is, that is hidden. That's the one that God doesn't forgive. <clears throat> I want to think of that tonight. Repentance is a way of life. We could say more about that. It's a posture of heart. It's, 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 a, it's a, another, I think of it as brokenness, like David said in Psalm 51. That repentance, um, he said it like this in the middle of his repentance. There, just read a couple of verses. He said, Thou desirest not sacrifice, 
Or else would I give it to you? I'll give you whatever sacrifice you want. Thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. Thou wilt not despise. Just a repentant heart, a broken heart. That's where God will dwell. That's where his presence will fill. He says that in Isaiah 57, doesn't he? To this man also I look. He that is poor and contrite in spirit. I think I'll just read that in this context. It stood out to me some time back. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. And this is what stood out to me some time back. It says here, I'll dwell with the one who's humble with, with a contrite and humble spirit. And this is what will happen. I'll revive him. It says to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. That's where I'll live. I'll dwell there. My presence will be there. And those people are the ones that will experience revival. I'll just revive them and revive them, refresh them and refresh them because his presence will be there. Repentance prepares the way of the Lord. Four voices we see there in Isaiah 40. We'll leave it. Well, I just share a story yet. Back in the day when D.L. Moody was preaching in the 1860s, 70s, it was become a very popular thing to have your portrait taken. So you would, you would sit, or you had to sit a longer time, have your portrait taken. Anyway, D.L. Moody once said, he said, you know, this is a very popular thing to have your portrait taken. He said, I wonder that if we could develop a machine that could take a portrait of the hearts of the people. I wonder how long the line would be for people to have a portrait of their heart. And if they had one, I wonder if they would show it around to others, like to do their portrait of their person. Interesting thought, isn't it? But God sees our heart. So we'll leave that there for tonight. The ministry, the call to repentance and a life of repentance. I think we'll just sing. Do you have a hymn? Okay, we'll sing the hymn and then uh, we'll have a closing prayer. So we stand to sing and then we'll close with a closing prayer. <laughs>